As we've discussed a little bit in the, uh, or as Roger discussed in his welcoming remarks, under the Roberts Court, perhaps we can see more trends or discern more trends in docket management rather than in the opinions themselves. Uh, the docket seems to be changing for reasons I won't go into here. We see relatively more business cases as well as more technical issues of statutory interpretation as opposed to hot-button constitutional disputes um, and, and other things that tend to make the front pages of the New York Times. Um, the cases tend to be decided along narrower, narrower grounds and, and, again, more technical, more unanimous grounds, especially in the business area, perhaps reflecting this minimalist uh, or, or restrained approach that Chief Justice Roberts advocated in his confirmation hearings. So here we're going to talk about these, these business cases. We have some significant one these, ones these term. Uh, Richard Bress will start. He will present Morgan Stanley Capital Group versus Public Utility Number 1, a case in which he represented one of the lit litigants. This is uh, the most important energy regulation case in years and one on which he co-authored a review article. Uh, it arose out of the California electricity crisis of 2000-2001 and tested the integrity of contract law generally. Uh, Bress is a partner in the Washington office of Latham and Watkins and practices in the areas of appellate and constitutional litigation with particular expertise in disputes over federal agency action. Before uh, joining Latham, he served as an assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General, in which he argued six cases before the Supreme Court, uh, and before that clerked for Justice Scalia and D.C. Circuit Judge Stephen F. Williams. Um, then we will have uh, Cato Supreme Court Review Board Member Adam Pritchard, who will use Stoneridge versus Scientific Atlanta, the biggest securities case to come down the pike in decades, to present an analysis of the state of securities law in the wake of class action reform. Pritchard teaches corporate and securities law at the University of Michigan and has served as senior counsel in the office of the general counsel of the SEC, as well as uh, being a visiting fellow in capital market studies at Cato. He holds a BA and JD from the University of Virginia and an MPP from the Harris School at the University of Chicago. And then we have Becky Wood, who co-wrote an article with Dan Troy, who couldn't join us, but he was previously the, the chief counsel of the FDA and now is uh, general counsel of, of GlaxoSmithKline, so he's not busy at all. Um, and they surveyed the court's regulatory preemption cases. Uh, Wood is a partner in uh, appellate and products liability um, in the Washington office of Sidley Austin. Uh, she has served a national counsel to several major pharmaceutical companies in product liability litigation, and her appellate work includes merits and amicus briefing to the Supreme Court in numerous matters, including three from the past term. She's a graduate of NYU Law School and Yale University and clerked for Judge Pasco Bowman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. So with that, let's start with uh, Mr. Bress. Thank you. Hi. Um, I will be talking about the Morgan Stanley case in some depth, but before I get to that, I thought it might be helpful to try at least to make an attempt to talk a bit about the business cases before the court uh, in general this last term. Now, I'm a bit hesitant to do that because, uh, as Ilya noted, you can sometimes learn more about where the court is by the cases it takes rather than just counting heads on the outcomes. Uh, that said, I will uh, go uh, where those wiser would fear to tread. Um, a few things that I think you can say about this, the, the term in terms of the business cases. Number one, certainly uh, statistically they didn't come out as heavily in favor of business as they had last term. Um, I don't really take a lot of stock in that basic statistic because I think you've got to dive and dig deeper under it. But it's something that has gotten the attention of the press um, since the term ended. A second point is greater consensus. There were fewer uh, five to four decisions in the business docket, and most of the cases were decided by six to three majorities or even greater majorities, which, uh, as I think some of my uh, co-panelists will discuss, attest to some degree at least to the technical nature of some of the cases on the docket as opposed to any ideological nature. Third, despite the general trend uh, you see in the past term that cases uh, that involved potentially massive liability against large and public companies uh, tended to go pro-business. Uh, those would have included uh, Stone Ridge, uh, which uh, Adam Pritchard is going to be discussing, uh, where the court uh, rejected the idea uh, 
of scheme liability uh, for parties who had engaged in commercial transactions with an issuer, uh, but had not themselves engaged in deceptive acts that were disclosed to the public. Um, Exxon Shipping is another case that I'd put in that category. Exxon Shipping, the court uh, ruled that under maritime law, which is a part of law that's within the court's common law doctrine, uh, punitive damages should not be more than a one-to-one ratio to compensatory damages. So drastically limited them. In that case, I think knocked it down from two, two and a half billion down to 500 million. And third, uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, which I'll discuss in a little more depth uh, later, but uh, Morgan Stanley is a case that, I guess, case, consolidated cases that involved altogether more than $12 billion of energy contracts in which those challenging the contracts, the buyers, um, sought essentially to uh, take away any presumption that because two parties agreed and contracted on a price, that that price was indeed just and reasonable. The Supreme Court held that, yes, we will continue to presume that the prices parties voluntarily agree to in energy contracts are just and reasonable and therefore lawful. And also, uh, the Court rejected the Ninth Circuit's notion that that only cuts one way when the... uh, The Ninth Circuit thought that you'd only make that presumption if the sellers were trying to increase the price after the fact, but if the buyers were trying to decrease the price after the fact, well, then, gosh, it was a de novo review, and the Supreme Court threw that out as well um, in a strong statement for, I think, free markets and uh, the integrity of contracts. Now, the third point I think I could say about this term is that uh, the outcomes were consistently pro-business in cases involving preemption, and those were cases where, at least as a policy matter, one could weigh uh, the state's rights to have diverse regulatory schemes and common law schemes against the interests of business uh, when business is already faced by a comprehensive and and, uh, rigorous federal scheme not to also have to deal with 50 diverse state schemes. And in that area, uh, the court consistently preempted state law this term, Now, I think as Becky will be discussing a bit later, Becky Wood, when she gets to it, um, I think one could overgeneralize the effect on federalism in those cases because many of them were very uh, technical and express preemption cases as opposed to the court um, really just ruling as a matter of policy on federalism generally. Uh, Third, uh, the cases that did go against business this last term um, and actually uniformly did so were cases involving employees suing their employers. Um, These cases were not the single-suit, class-action, massive liability cases. Uh, Most of them involved single employees suing under uh, discrimination and um, retaliation theories. And in those cases, in two of them, the court upheld uh, retaliation as a cause of action. In one, it was under Section 1981, and in one, it was under the ADEA. Uh, In both of those cases, the court relied very heavily on precedent going back uh, to the Warren Court era. And uh, really at the expense of textualism, I guess I'd say, because in neither case could you say that retaliation was built into the statute in any way that you would notice if you read the words. Uh, Other cases that, that went in the employee's favor included employee benefits cases, for example, cases which upheld Uh, an employee's ability uh, to sue for losses to his 401k account uh, caused by fiduciary action, even though he wasn't suing on behalf of all of the assets of the plan. He could sue on behalf of the plan for his own account. Uh, The court upheld that cause of action and really stressed that if it did otherwise, it would ignore the fact that over the past 20 years, 401k accounts have become the predominant way that people save, that employees save. Um, One thing that I think is interesting when you look at the employee cases, the discrimination cases, and compare them to Stone Ridge, for example, is the different treatment uh, that the court gave to textualism on the one hand and implied cause of action on the other. In Stone Ridge, as will be discussed, uh, the court made a very strong statement about limiting implied cause of action, in that case, implied cause of action under 10b-5. Um, And yet, when you get uh, to the discrimination cases, um, the employer-employee cases, the court in two cases uh, went with precedent that had recognized implied causes of action really over very vigorous dissents. 
I don't have a great reason for you why it went, uh, why the cases came out that way. But there has always been something unique about the uh, cases that are civil rights cases or anti-discrimination cases. And the court may well uh, feel that it's more sensitive in in the latter um, to try strictly to confine them uh, into into the facts of the cases as they were originally brought. Finally, uh, the court, and I would say a supermajority of the court, uh, showed interest in and I think remarkable, um, was remarkably candid in discussing concepts of uh, economic factors and economic efficiency. And this showed itself in many cases and I think actually is a harbinger of good things to come for the business community. I think one case, uh, and since it's the one I wrote on, I'll talk about it first, is Morgan Stanley. Now in that case, as I noted, uh, what you had pitted against one another, essentially the buyers of energy, the buyers not being the consumers directly, but rather the large utilities that bought energy during the Western energy crisis against those who uh, sold the energy, the energy companies, uh, whether they were producing the energy themselves or buying it from someone else and selling it. Uh, in, 19, in, in about 2000, 2001, these contracts were signed. It was the height of the energy crisis. Prices were very high by historic standards. And the spot market for electricity uh, was said to be dysfunctional. Um, now, I, I think it was dysfunctional in, in some ways, but, but the dysfunction was largely uh, because California's market rules that it adopted uh, for market-based sales of electricity constrained the companies in ways that really prevented the market from working efficiently. In any event, there are claims also uh, of manipulation in the spot market at the time by Enron and others. Now, the cases that I've written on, the Morgan Stanley case and others, uh, don't involve spot market sales. They involve forward market sales going on contemporaneously. Now, forward market prices um, are said often to reflect what people currently think the spot spot market prices will be in the future. Uh, No one knows what they'll be in the future, and at the time everyone signed these contracts, they all took risks. The buyers took a risk that the prices would go down later and they'd feel like fools for having essentially locked in on uh, prices at the time. And the sellers, of course, took the risk that prices would continue to rise and so the prices they'd agreed to sell at for the next 10 years uh, would turn out to be too low and not cover their own costs. At the time, the buyers lauded their contracts in the press and otherwise and talked about the good deals they'd gotten. But the energy crisis hit, spot market prices went down generally, And uh, the same people who had praised the contracts they'd gotten marched into FERC and said that the prices that had been good were now unjust and unreasonable. Um, FERC uh, rejected those challenges and uh, rejected them under a Supreme Court doctrine named after two cases, Mobile and Sierra. And those cases had recognized that a contract between the buyers and sellers would be presumptively just and reasonable and thus presumptively lawful unless there were extraordinary circumstances of great public necessity. FERC upheld the contracts under those standards after a trial. Uh, The challengers then moved to the Ninth Circuit, which was, of course, a far friendlier venue for them, and got a very friendly panel um, uh, for that point of view. Um, The Ninth Circuit held, in that case, a couple of things. First of all, it held uh, that Mobile Sierra would not apply unless FERC, after the contract was signed, FERC first determined on its own that the price was just and reasonable. Uh, Secondly, it held that even years after the fact, a buyer should be able to get rid of the presumption of validity if it could demonstrate that at the time the contracts were signed, the market was working imperfectly. And third, it held even if the doctrine applied, it only applied when the challenge was made by the buyer and not when the challenge was made by the seller. When the challenge was made by the seller, the price would be reasonable only if it was at marginal cost. Uh, The sellers then uh, petitioned for cert to the Supreme Court. The court took cert of the case. Actually, uh, even though FERC, whose order was being defended, did not support cert. um, Nonetheless, the court took cert and, in an opinion that was really quite definitive, upheld the Mobile Sierra Doctrine, ruled that, yes, indeed, 50 years later, A contract is still a contract, and we will still presume that large buyers and sellers negotiating in a free market have achieved a price that is just and reasonable. The court recognized that you can't go back after the fact and start talking about whether the market was imperfect or not, or whether exogenous factors caused the price to be too high and too low. Because, frankly, you can say that about an awful lot of markets out there, and if you allowed that sort of thing and you allowed 
attacks on contracts of that sort and you took away the presumptions of validity, then sellers would be very hesitant to engage in long-term contracts. And so while you might help these particular consumers by lowering their costs and their prices, in the long run, you'd increase costs of consumers because capital would not flow into that market, into the energy market, and when it did, sellers would demand high premiums. Finally, the court had little trouble rejecting the notion that what's good for the uh, goose is not good for the gander and held that a contract is deemed reasonable whether challenged later by the buyer or the seller. Now, in, those, in that case, the textual language of the statute recognizes that contracts can be a basis uh, for uh, rates being set, but actually says very little beyond that. Uh, the court in, in, the early, in, in the late 50s, when it decided Mobile and Sierra, read from Congress's um, allowance of contracts as a basis for, uh, for filed rate, rate prices, um, really free market um, and, uh, values and the value of, um, to the market and to efficiency and to consumers of, rec- of giving a presumption of validity uh, to contracts freely negotiated. Uh, the court uh, just last year in uh, 2008 uh, went the same way and, in fact, expanded upon where the court had been before. I think that case is a nice example of the court really understanding concepts of economics and economic efficiency and giving them some prominence. The other cases I'll just touch on briefly because um, I see I'm closing out on my time. Um, I think that a couple of the uh, cases involving uh, preemption, the court also recognized concepts of efficiency and regal. The court noted that juries are even less likely than state regulators to take into account concepts of cost-benefit and preempted the idea of jury awards in areas where the FDA had already approved the device. I think in uh, Stonebridge is another case where the court in its discussions recognized that if you permitted scheme liability of the sort that was uh, being asserted, you would really raise the cost of doing business, in particular make overseas uh, companies less willing to engage in commerce in the United States and less willing uh, to be listed on U.S. exchanges. There are several other examples uh, that we can discuss, but I do think that you've got a solid majority of the court that at least when other values are not being presented um, in a way that, that, that catches them more strongly, understand and are willing to recognize the benefits of free markets. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be back here at uh, Cato again. Uh, Roger gave me an office a few years ago when I was uh, homeless and looking for space, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to return. Um, my case for today is uh, Stone Ridge. The Supreme Court decides, on average, one securities case per term. Uh, Stone Ridge stands out uh, mainly for its economic significance. There's a lot of money involved in the question that they decided whether third parties could be roped into uh, securities fraud class actions. And the, uh, the holding of the case, I think, is not altogether surprising given the way the court has uh, ruled in the last few years in securities cases, uh, cabining the reach of the implied private cause of action under Rule 10b-5. Um, what is a little more surprising, at least uh, to me, was how the court got to that result. And uh, the methods, the doctrinal hook that the court used, I think, uh, sheds light on uh, not only uh, how the court has gotten so badly off track in Rule 10b-5 causes of action, but also uh, something about the uh, possibilities of reform coming from the court. And Uh, The doctrinal hook that the court used in rejecting uh, third-party liability in Stone Ridge was reliance. Uh, But they have a a kind of odd notion of reliance. Common law fraud, the reliance element, the plaintiff has to prove that they read the misstatement and it caused them to enter into the transaction. But in Stone Ridge, Justice Kennedy tells us that, no, reliance doesn't have anything to do with investors. It's about the defendant who has made the misstatement, and it's really proximate cause. So reliance is an odd word to use for proximate cause. Uh, The basic holding is that 
the conduct of the third parties was too remote uh, for there to have been reliance. Uh, this provoked uh, uh, a pretty good response, I think, from Justice Stevens that in the past the court had been quite liberal with the reliance element and uh, had uh, assumed reliance in cases where uh, using the same proximate cause notion and had used the uh, proximate cause notion to expand liability. And the case pointed to by uh, Justice Stevens is uh, really uh, the the fulcrum of where the Supreme Court has gotten off track in securities fraud class actions, and that's the Basic versus Levinson case, where they first grappled with the notion of reliance in securities fraud class actions, and basically excused reliance for large companies with actively traded securities, saying that uh, they were not going to require individual investors to show that they had relied on the misstatement. And to my mind, uh, this is where the court got off track, because the it's a conceptual uh, mistake that they're making. They're treating reliance as a version of proximate cause, but actually the reliance element is about protecting investments in information. You've read something, the law will protect your reliance on what you have read. You are investing in information in the securities markets. We think that information leads to better price discovery, and we think that people who read things should be protected. Basic versus Levinson said that we didn't have to uh, worry about whether or not people had relied. The other mistake that they made in Basic, which goes uncorrected in Stone Ridge, is they completely ignored the question of damages. So uh, the result of Basic's essentially doing away with the reliance element was to open the door for uh, multi-hundred million of dollar damages claims and securities fraud class actions, uh, sometimes running up into the billions. And uh, this might make sense if uh, people had relied on the information, uh, but uh, they excused that element. And the other uh, point that the court ignored in BASIC and continues to ignore in Stone Ridge is that they failed to focus on the defendant's benefit. So uh, one of the uh, innovations in the reliance cases from the Supreme Court, the one that comes between Basic and Stone Ridge, is Central Bank. And Central Bank told us how we should look at Rule 10b-5 causes of action. Uh, Stone Ridge makes it pretty clear that as an implied right of action, the court is not going to expand Rule 10b-5 causes of action. But in Central Bank, they told us that uh, we're going to undertake this analysis with two steps. The first step, we'll look at the text of Rule 10b-5 and determine whether it, caught, it, it answers the question before us. If Rule 10b-5 is silent, we'll then turn to the express causes of action uh, in the securities laws to answer the question uh, that is posed. Reliance not actually in the text of Section 10b or Rule 10b-5, because Congress never intended to create a private cause of action. So if we go to the next step that Central Bank tells us to do, uh, we would see that there are two kinds of private causes of action in the securities law. The first kind, reliance is excused, like the Supreme Court did in BASIC. But when reliance is excused, Damages are limited. Damages are limited to the defendant's benefit from the fraud. And the, uh, the basic cases where the corporation is being sued for having uh, affected the secondary market price for its securities, the corporation is not benefited at all, uh, but the damages are measured in the hundreds of millions of dollars, as I said. And the second class of uh, private causes of action under the securities laws. Damages are compensatory. Plaintiffs are entitled to full compensation for the harm that they have suffered, but uh, they have to show actual reliance. Section 18 of the Exchange Act is the, the cause of action closest to being on point, and the idea is to protect investments in information. The result of uh, severing damages from reliance in Rule 10b-5 is that we have 
uh, class action suits that are basically targeting large companies that have steep stock price drops. And it's the corporations that are paying the damages in these cases. So we have the shareholders suing the corporation. The corporation pays them some money, pays the lawyers more money for the privilege of moving the money around. But it's all coming out of the corporation's coffers, which is to say out of the dividends that would have been paid to shareholders. So uh, it's largely an exercise in uh, pocket shifting. Uh, So... My last point relates to can we fix this? And Stone Ridge tells us something about the likelihood of uh, the securities class action regime being fixed. And the court was quite clear that it wasn't their job. They will not expand the private right of action. Uh, Justice Kennedy makes it pretty clear that it was a mistake to imply it in the first place. Uh, And Uh, It should not be continued. But he also stresses that they're going to defer to Congress. And if and until Congress fixes this, uh, it's not going to change. Um, Congress had the chance to fix this back when they passed securities litigation reform back in 1995. And they ducked. Basically, the opposition from the plaintiff's bar was uh, sufficiently strong that they had no interest in doing it. The SEC... This is Rule 10b-5, so it's an SEC rule. They would have the power to uh, fix this. But in Stone Ridge, they tried to side with the plaintiff's bar, got overruled by the Justice Department, which uh, rejected their position. Uh, It seems unlikely to me that the the SEC is going to fix things. So uh, at this point, I think we're left with the shareholders uh, who, if they want to see securities class actions reined in, are going to have to do it for themselves through uh, an amendment to the Articles of Incorporation. And uh, the problem is created by BASIC and its presumption of reliance, uh, but I think that the shareholders can fix, undo BASIC through their Articles of Incorporation. And my article goes into some length about why that is legal, uh, but uh, basically shareholders can't wait for the Supreme Court to fix its errors. Stone Ridge makes it pretty clear that uh, the Supreme Court has no intention of doing so. It's up to the shareholders. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, As Ilya mentioned, I do want to give a big thanks to my co-author and former law partner, Dan Troy. I think as Many of you know uh, Dan has really been a leading light in developing federal regulatory preemption theories, particularly in the area of prescription drugs and medical devices. I also would like to extend a word of thanks to my other Sidley colleagues, Carter Phillips and Eamon Joyce, who contributed to the article from which I'll be talking, as well as our summer associate, Will Adams, um, all of whom contributed. Second, of course, since I'm a lawyer, I've got to give you a little bit of a disclaimer. As Ilya alluded to, um, I did represent the party or amicus in all three of the federal preemption cases involving drugs and devices in Kent Regal and the upcoming case Wyeth versus Levine. And our firm also filed amicus briefs um, in the Exxon Shipping case and the Roe case, which I'll be talking about. So to be clear, the comments here are solely my own. Um, As we suggest in the article, it really has been an interesting time for federal preemption at the Supreme Court this term. Depending on how you count it, the court heard six federal preemption cases. It decided four of those cases in favor of federal preemption. It decided one against preemption, if you count it as a preemption case. And it came to a draw for four in a sixth case in which the Chief Justice recused and did not participate. I think the other striking thing about the regulatory preemption cases this term is the incredible majorities. I mean, these were a series of nine, eight, and seven justice majorities joining together some of the court's most liberal and conservative members. Uh, To break it down, and certainly statistics aren't everything, but I do think they tell a story here. Um, If you just look through these cases, there was an extraordinary day in February of this year where the court um, decided a trio of pro-preemption cases on a given day. In the Roe case, this was the case involving the Federal Aviation Administrative Authorization Act and federal motor carrier shipping. It was a 9-0 decision, Justice Breyer writing for the court. 
in Preston versus Ferrer. This was the Judge Alex case involving the Federal Arbitration Act. It was an 8-1 decision, this time authored by Justice Ginsburg, with only Justice Thomas dissenting given his views on that particular act. Um, in Regal versus Medtronic, this is the pre-market approval federal preemption device case, 8-1 decision, this time authored by Scalia with only Ginsburg dissenting. Um, and then the fourth case, which came down not on the same day, there was also a very large 7-2 majority. This is the Chamber of Commerce Natural, National Labor Relations Act case. This time, Justice Stevens wrote the, the preemption case for the majority, and only Justices Breyer and Ginsburg dissented. Um, Interestingly, I think as, as another panelist has mentioned, all of these cases did involve an express preemption provision or what seemed to operate functionally as one. The fifth, the fifth case that I'll throw into this, and this is a bit controversial about whether you think it's a preemption case or not, is the Exxon shipping case. I mean, we certainly think of that case typically for its extraordinary punitive damages teaching, but it also did have a preemption aspect to it in a slightly different sense um, in that it rejected the preemptive effect of an express preemption provision of the Clean Water Act on federal maritime common law. So this time not state law, but federal common law. But that, too, was an 8-0 decision. Justice Alito took no part. Um, and an extraordinary uh, uniform rejection based, again, on statutory text in that case. The fourth case I'll talk about is the Kent case, which doesn't really count as a case because there wasn't any precedential opinion, but I think it's sort of interesting in that it was the loan case involving implied as opposed to express preemption. Um, and as I say, it was a 4-4 split with the Chief Justice recusing. And I think as folks know, consistent with its practice in those kinds of cases, the court simply issued a per curiam opinion affirming what happened below. We don't know who exactly voted um, on which side, although we certainly have some guesses. Um, and that effectively just leaves the legal landscape where the court found it, doesn't have a precedential effect. Um, in the coming term, I think, as folks know, the court is poised to hear a couple of significant preemption cases in the coming months. Wyeth versus Levine, which is the much-watched um, prescription drug implied preemption case, is going to be argued in early November. And the Altria Group um, case involving cigarette advertising um, will be argued in early October. So certainly, although one term does not a trend make, um, and although there was a relatively small number of preemption cases, um, the court did appear to decide federal in favor of federal preemption somewhat more than it usually does. Um, one study observed, for example, looking back over about 20 years, that there's typically a bit more than six cases, and they typically uphold federal preemption in only about half. So they did a bit better than that this time, depending on how you count it. Certainly critics from a variety of perspectives have questioned whether there is a troubling trend in favor of federal preemption. Um, and I'd like to offer a couple of observations about what might be going on and how it may bode in the future. Um, I think before going any farther, I just want to pause for a moment and uh, define some of the terms. I think as people know, the ordinary sense in which preemption is talked about is the power of federal law to trump state law in certain circumstances. Um, on Constitution Day, it's appropriate and fitting to note that it's, of course, rooted in the supremacy clause of the Constitution, um, there's nothing new about it, although it certainly has seemed to get increased attention in certain areas in recent years. And under well-known standards, as I've already alluded to, it could be either expressed in a particular statutory provision or implied. Um, and that seems to have had some effect on how the court has been deciding these issues. Um, interestingly, preemption debates can really make for odd coalitions. I think on the one hand, we tend to see plaintiffs' councils, consumer groups, and state officials tending to urge that federal preemption improperly displaces um, state traditional police power to protect their citizen, particularly in matters involving health and safety. And on the other hand, you may have federal agencies and the entities that they regulate um, urging that preemption is really a necessary bulwark against 50 inconsistent state law um, standards being applied to them. Even advocates of federalism within its proper sphere, however, may recognize and apparently do a profound need to protect regulated entities when their conduct is being closely regulated. For example, I think if we look at Chief Justice Roberts and we look at Justice Alito, both of whom, of course, were federal executive officials themselves and also lower federal um, judges before being elevated to the court, certainly their records are still emerging, but both of them did vote in favor of preemption in each of the cases in which they participated this term. 
Um, the other thing, and I think has been mentioned a bit already, is this trend towards lopsided majorities may be part of a wider trend towards building consensus, even if it means issuing narrower rulings. I think, as folks have mentioned, the Chief Justice at his confirmation hearings did really call it a top priority to try to make a, gr a greater degree of coherence and simpler, narrower opinions rather than the fractured ones that at least we as practitioners find very hard to live under. Um, and in keeping in with that, that goal, I think there has been some effort to try to issue narrower opinions that stick to the text and try not to delve into the hot-button issues. Um, so kind of interestingly, there's a decrease in the 5-4 opinions. Overall, the statistics, I think, are about 16% of the decisions um, in the signed cases were 5-4 this term. And in the pro-business, in the business cases, um, although they were only about 30% of the overall case law, about half were decided by 9-0 or 8-1 margins. So what's happening here? We, uh, we certainly go into this in more detail in the article, but I wanted to make three basic points. One is that there appears to be, at least in these cases, a significant focus on good old-fashioned statutory interpretation rather than grand constitutional conflicts such as federalism and a really self-conscious effort to avoid those divisive debates where possible. Um, the court also seemed to be more apt to agree by large mo margins where it could coalesce around some statutory language, either in an express preemption provision or in a statutory provision that seemed to function as one. The second observation we would offer is that other things being equal, the court appeared to be more inclined towards preemption where a case involved matters of special national concern or where the expert federal agency had actually made a calibrated judgment that appeared to be threatened by contrary state law action. The third point is kind of related, which is that the court appears to take comfort in the reality of a federal agency having applied its expert judgment within the scope of its delegated power and urging that there be preemption. Significantly, however, the court typically did so without wading in in any kind of express way into a formal agency deference analysis, which can sometimes be quite divisive about, is it Skidmore deference, is it our de deference? What is it? They just kind of seem to actually defer without saying the degree to which they were doing it. So to the extent we have time, I'll go through each of those points in a little bit more detail. I mean, as I say, I think in Roe, Regal, Preston, Chamber, and Exxon, all of those cases are significant because they involved an express preemption provision. I think Regal is an interesting case to take a look at because it involved an express preemption provision of the medical device amendments to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and determined that at least as to that very narrow class of medical devices that, in, that go through the most rigorous form of FDA approval, which are these pre-market approved class three devices, um, that the, there was express preemption. Um, and in doing so, I think this result was pretty much presaged by an earlier decision called Medtronic versus Lore, where in looking under the statutory language to whether or not there was a quote federal requirement the court determined that a generally less rigorous oversight of something called a 510K device didn't quite cut it. But they suggested even back in that case that where there was more extensive FDA oversight, as there is here where there's thousands of hours of review and a specific determination about every aspect of these medical devices, their design as well as the labeling, and that, that it must be marketed under those requirements, that that did meet the statutory definition. Um, and indeed, before Regal, Virtually every court of appeal to take the case had gone the same way and found that those, that kind of rigorous process involved in, in PMA did constitute a federal requirement. Um, the other language in the statute was whether or not there was a different state law requirement, and the court made short work of the fact, building on some older precedent, that in fact com common law actions, including jury determinations as well as state statutes, do constitute state requirements. Um, so that when a lawsuit is trying to seek a different kind of warning or a different kind of design, that would be different from the federal requirement and therefore preempted. Um, interestingly, in the way in which this, uh, the court went about analyzing the issue, Justice Scalia, who wrote for the eight justice majority, emphasized that the court's decision turned on plain text and actually said it's not our job to speculate upon congressional motives. Um, certainly the sole dissenting voice, Justice Ginsburg, had a long discussion in her dissent about what she thought Congress really intended in passing 
um, that particular the Medical Device Amendment Act. Um, but even Justice Stevens, uh, who joined the majority in this case in the pro preemption provision, said that even if the significance of the express preemption provision perhaps was not fully appreciated until many years later, it's ultimately the provisions of our laws rather than the principal concerns of our legislators by which we are governed. So even he went along with this textualist approach in that case. Um, federal and state interests, I think, are also an interesting component that we're seeing. And I think in some ways where you start may be where you end, because certainly um, in some of these cases, the state would take the position that what was at issue was a traditional state interest. For example, in the Brown case, um, the state of California took the view that essentially what was at stake was how state funds would be used. Um, and in contrast, the government took the view that, in fact, what was at issue was federal labor law policy. And the court adopted the later provision and basically said that having a hodgepodge of 50 different state law standards would pose a, uh, an inappropriate um, interference with the idea of having uniform federal labor policy. Um, and as I say, I think a last point that's, that's very interesting is um, that the court really has strayed away from engaging in any kind of academic debate about the degree of deference that's going to be given to an agency. Certainly for many years we've been trying to get the court to accept certiorari and clarify when the well-known doctrines of Chevron, Auer, and Skidmore deference apply when you're looking at various levels of informal or former agency speaking on different issues. And they've really punted on that issue, despite having it be briefed to them in a lot of these cases. Um, I think what we've seen is something that I would call sort of actual deference rather than kind of getting into the nitty-gritty that could produce a lot of fractured opinions about the degree of deference that's actually going to be given. And then I guess I'll just leave you with the fact that I think in each of these cases, um, the court did seem in influenced, although they said they weren't at times, um, by the fact that an expert agency had actually looked at an issue very carefully. Uh, and I think one interesting comment that I'll leave you with that Justice Breyer made in an oral argument that perhaps could um, foreshadow how he may approach the Wyeth case coming up, which involves prescription drugs, is he said to the plaintiff's counsel at argument, you know, who would you rather have make the decision about whether a drug on balance is going to save people or on balance going to hurt people? An expert agency on the one hand or 12 people pulled randomly from a ju jury role who see before them only the people the drug hurt and don't see the people who need the drug to cure them. So I think a sort of approach where a federal agency has actually considered an issue and made a calibrated judgment even in the absence of an express preemption provision, although you may not get the kinds of majorities you get in that situation, there may also be a tendency to defer. Well, thanks, Becky, and thanks, uh, all three of you. Um, does anyone want to respond to, first of all, to anything that, that's been said? Okay, I'll just ask the, the first question, which I'm sure is on many people's minds. Um, so th this week there seems to be some news in the business world and securities and so forth. Uh, what can we see coming out of these, this period right now that's going to be in the court you know, a year from now, two years from now? Um, hysterical overreaction by politicians that the court will go along with. Speaking to the mic. Uh, I don't think that the, the securities, and at least in the field of securities, I don't expect to see much fallout that will show up in the, the court. Uh, I think it will be in Congress and the executive branch, and something will be done. Uh, it won't do anything effective, but something will be done. <laughs> it's an election year. Rick, there was a California crisis eight years ago that produced your case. What would Anything like it, uh, challenging contract law or or any other basic principles of our jurisprudence? Well, I think I'd actually look back to the SNL crisis of the early 90s if I was going to look for a framework for what we can expect coming out of this. Uh, as many of you remember, in the early 90s when, uh, when the crisis hit, Congress uh, passed FIREA, for example, which, uh, among other things, uh, took away from purchasers of SNL the treatment of the, their goodwill as capital. Uh, when these purchasers had acquired failing SNLs, the way that they met their capital requirements is uh, that the agencies had said, don't worry, you can count and we will count your goodwill towards capital. 
When the crisis uh, got even more intense, Congress passed a law taking that ability away and then taking over the SNLs uh, that people had spent uh, their hard-earned money on, uh, leading uh, to massive lawsuits, uh, takings claims, and uh, lots of federal contract claims that eventually reached uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, there were also many prosecutions of SNL executives, um, some uh, valid, uh, many not, uh, many, I think, in the nature of persecutions. And I think that, you know, we'll see some of those sorts of overreactions as well. Anything to add, Becky? No, I mean, I think just the observation as a torts lawyer that, you know, sometimes in worse economic times, the so-called litigation crisis in terms of people suing when they've been perceived that they've been harmed by something can increase. And so I think you may see even more of this kind of litigation. All right. Questions from the audience. Again, uh, remember, wait for the microphone. Let's start right here. Um, announce your, uh, identify yourself and your affiliation and ask a brief question. Yes. Um, uh, my name is John Burla. I'm with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Um, my colleagues, uh, Sam Kasman and Hans Bader, are involved in a, a lawsuit against uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley created Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which enforces the rules of Sarbanes-Oxley. They're representing a small accounting firm who, uh, who has just they, they totally stopped his ability to audit public uh, public companies when he did nothing wrong. And Sarbanes-Oxley is, by the way, the answer to those who say the Bush administration has been deregulatory, billions of dollars in costs, and yet it, it did nothing to prevent this uh, this crisis. But anyway, there there's it's a constitutional appointments clause challenge. There was it's making its way through the courts. There was a ruling last month from a three-judge panel on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and I'd like, there are two aspects of the case I'd like to ask the panel about. about one is standing. Um, that, you know, it's weird with our, with our standing rules, and it's, you know, in, in the Constitution, it has to be a case in controversy, but sometimes an environmentalist can get standing if an oil project... Uh, we get standing, yep. Okay, all right. Um, they ruled that if there was a co- if there was a constitutional issue that you didn't have to exhaust the regulatory pr- uh, pr- uh, process to uh, to get uh, uh, to get to get standing that, that that our client that he that the courts had subject matter jurisdiction uh, over that if there was a constitutional claim uh, about the structure of uh, of, a, of an agency or a constitutional problem with the law rather than you know a, like a due process claim or something like that. I wanted to. Um, any any thoughts on that, and just the small business uh, small business people having to ex- totally exhaust a regulatory process, almost go bankrupt before they can even get their day in court? Anyone up on that case, or know if that's something about the appointments clause? My wife does. <laughs> you, you want to call her and get back to us? <laughs> a lifeline, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, I, mean, I certainly don't know anything about the case in particular. Um, but standing rules ordinarily. Uh, constitutional standing very often will not require the sort of exhaustion that you're talking about. The Justice Department actually argues that it did, but... Well, they'll generally put up standing ripeness and any other barrier that they can come up with that's jurisdictional. As, as I understand about this case, the uh, the counselor deciding whether to go for a rehearing on Bonk in the D.C. Circuit or to go for, for a cert petition. Um, so keep tuned. We, we might be discussing the case in, in two years or so. so. About the appointments clause issue, there was... It was, it was a John, you, I'm sorry. You've, you've spoken quite a bit. I'm sorry. Uh, we'll see if we have more time again to revisit it. Uh, let's go back there. I'd like to ask uh, Professor Pritchard a question. My name is John Rollins, uh, non-affiliated. I've never seen shareholders be able to covey up and do anything together, but given the fact that they may, uh, can you just list real quick for me the changes in the the certificate of incorporation or the articles and the state, a list of those and the state that you'd recommend that uh, a company incorporate in? Uh, Well, this is fleshed out in considerable detail in the article, but... Basically, the idea would be to specify in the Articles of Incorporation that the damages measure for securities fraud class actions should be disgorgement of benefit from the fraud, 
rather than compensation to the victims, uh, which would refocus the lawsuits from the corporation, meaning the shareholders end up paying themselves, to the uh, officers, the executives of the company that actually have made the misstatements. So the damages would be the stock options that they cashed in during the time of the fraud or the bonus that they got at the end of the year because the stock price was at a certain level. So it would scale back the available damages, but it would refocus it on the people who actually committed the fraud rather than the corporate fictional legal entity. Uh, a state? Uh, a state uh, that incorporates. Oh, no, I... Th- well... Uh, no, I think shareholders can, can do this in their individual corporations' bylaws. They would have to recommend it to the directors who would then uh, put through an amendment that the shareholders could approve. So it would be company by company. But... Uh, my analysis, at least of, of Delaware corporate law, and I don't think there's any reason to think other states differ on this, is that it would be legal under state corporate law to do it. Yeah, charge him, persistent uh, Mellon, to press. Sure, deer is a deer, but the uh, circumstances uh, could be changed. Usually, under what uh, uh, condition the, the uh, contract can be negotiated. And uh, also that uh, you mentioned that uh, in paper you mentioned traditional contract principle. Is there a non-traditional uh, uh, contract principle? If there is, yes, then uh, what is and if contract uh, involve two nations, could one nation's uh, harm uh, to public interest, interest uh, could be a base uh, for the nego- negotiation? Uh, for Pritchard, uh, you said that... Let's, that let's start with that one, okay, and, and we'll, we'll take Pritchard. Well, I, let me just take a, a piece of it at least, um, which is that, you know, I think we all started from, and I'll just... Uh, acknowledge here. I'm, I'm not neutral on the uh, Morgan Stanley case. We represented uh, one of the sellers in the case, but we all started from the principle that ordinary contract law principles would apply. So, for example, if a contract was obtained through fraud, duress, that sort of thing, then certainly uh, the contract wouldn't create any presumption uh, that the that the rates were just and reasonable. The question here was if the contract is otherwise valid under traditional principles. Um, should it uh, nonetheless be able to be overcome by an agency which just looks at it afterwards and doesn't like the price? And the Ninth Circuit really took a very centralized planning view, I'd say, and favored the idea of an agency and its wisdom setting a just and reasonable price. And the Supreme Court and FERC uh, took, I think, the more traditional view that when parties voluntarily agree to a price, uh, that price will be presumed to be valid and just and reasonable. Now, as between foreign countries, I, I really don't have any great expertise on what in- international tribunals uh, would do. Uh, actually, well, let's come back to you. Like, we'll come back to Mr. Burlow if we have more time again. We, we operate under uh, uh, bright line rules here in trying to affect justice, of course. We need to apply that to questions. Uh, way back there. Hi, my name is Margaret Newell. I'm here in my personal capacity. Um, I just wondered if any of you anticipated any interesting constitutional issues coming out of the uh, federal government action with respect to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac recently. Anything to uh, say in addition to what you've already said? I, I really can't speak on this subject. Other questions? Down here. I certainly can't either. So. Uh, C. Alexander Evans, City University of New York Graduate Center. Uh, this question is primarily for uh, Mr. Bess. Bess, um, you briefly mentioned uh, the uh, Exxon shipping case, uh, and that to me seemed like it was a, it was a huge case uh, in the year's docket. And that was not so much because it, it turned out to be pro-business, but because it set for the first time 
an actual standard in the punitive damage case is similar to that one-to-one standard. Um, maybe you could just, just say a bit more about the role that case played in this year's, this year's business docket. Uh, sure. Um, and as to punitives more generally, I, mean, I think, look, I think the case is very useful in, in giving us even more of a glimpse than we've had before about what the justices think an appropriate ratio of punitive damages to compensatory damages is, and, and in general, what they think of punitive damages. Uh, and I do believe that as an advocate, for example, you can you can certainly argue from some of the principles that, that the court discusses in the case. But there's a limitation here, which is that the case is under the court's common law doctrine, which is an extremely narrow doctrine. The court really is lawmaking in this capacity, and it's not doing it under the Constitution. So you can't directly say, because it's a one-to-one ratio in this case, therefore state courts are going to be held to a one-to-one ratio as a matter of constitutional law. The court has said that it expects single digits in terms of ratios will be the limit except in the most extreme cases. This case gave me some hope that the court will go further than that, but I don't think you can uh, uh, place anything on it definitive. Sure. Well, let's go back to Mr. Burlow. Um, now, we, if you still want to ask your, your question. Now, the, the panelists have said that they're not really appointments clause experts, but if you want to ask another question about Sarbanes-Oxley, perhaps. The case was t- was two to one with a very strong dissent in our favor, calling it the most um, uh, uh, the most important separation pa- uh, of powers case in, in, of the last twenty uh, twenty years. And the appointments uh, clause it's it's just you know that uh, that principal officers have to be appointed by the president and confirmed by Congress. But even an inferior officer, um, anyone who exercises significant authority on behalf of the United States, has to at the very least be appointed by the president, a head of a department, and there's debate about whether that's a cabinet-level department or not, which is an issue in this case, or a court of law. There's a, there's also a patent case going on where uh, a George Washington University professor, John Duffy, found that all of these patents had been granted by this panel not appointed by the Secretary of Commerce, so there's a chance of a lot of them might be reversed, and Congress was trying to correct this. Should people, or will this become a more important issue, because it also seems to be bipartisan in the court, where if, you know, somebody is subject to a regulatory action and the regulatory officials involved have not been appointed by at least the head of the department, um, that, uh, that, will, that, that issue will be raised more. And the founding fathers did this so that we wouldn't have offices, founding offices, bureaucrats appointing bureaucrats, and there would be some accountability in the links in the chain. I'll say before the panelists, if they have something to say, I'll just note that unfortunately, um, due to time limitations during the Constitution Day conference, we couldn't invite our fourth business case author who specifically tackled patents, uh, Scott Keefe at Washington University. So uh, you might want to reach out to him as well. He's a, he's a great you know, friend of Cato and, and, and on the patent and intellectual property issues. But panelists, any, any comments on that? Sorry. <laughs> uh, down here again. Yeah, second question to Preacher. Uh, at the end of your article, you said that uh, stay tuned. Do you mean that uh, the new administration is coming, so Congress and SEC may do something differently? Or you mean that uh, have to dep- uh, the shareholder have to depend on themselves? Uh, and uh, to would that... Uh, your case uh, is most uh, in uh, involved FDA. In history, has any uh, uh, state law pre- uh, not uh, uh, preempted? And also, if you talk about the OSHA law, actually California law is uh, more uh, stringent than the federal law. So uh, that may be different case. Thank you. Adam? Uh, briefly, I don't expect any reform of securities fraud class actions to come from uh, either the Congress or the executive branch. They've had their opportunity and tinkered around the edges, but never actually grappled with the fundamental issue. So the the stay tuned, uh, really, this this article is a call to action. Uh, Let the revolution begin, and uh, I'm hoping that shareholders are going to 
uh, take this up because annual meeting season is coming and it's time for them to, uh, to take this on if they, they want. Becky? Uh, I'm not going to speak to a particular case, but I think in general, if the gentleman's question is, you know, does preemption always apply to state law actions, the answer is certainly no. And I think it's a critical point to remember, particularly about implied conflict preemption, that it is a very nuanced um, judgment that has to be made with respect to the particular statutory team scheme at issue with respect to the what exactly the state law action is trying to do and with respect to whatever particular federal agency um, action there has been, which may well be quite peculiar to the given statutory regime at issue. So FDA preemption um, may have a different analysis than other forms of um, preemption. And if the gentleman's question is also, what if state law is stricter than federal law, would it, um, would it then not be preempted? And I think also it's going to be case by case, but certainly there are suggestions in a number of the court's cases that what you're looking for is a calibrated federal judgment. And so if the agency has said we want this particular balance for a particular public policy reason that's within our purview as an agency to say, even if a state is stricter, that could certainly topple the balance just as much as if the, um, the state is weaker. And so I think it could cut both ways depending on the case. Just to follow up on your previous question about international contracts, um, and again, we're talking about, as I understand your question, private contracts between international companies, not, uh, you know, as we were talking, as I talked about in, my, in the previous panel, international treaties that a country is party to. Um, now, there's this uh, international treaty, international convention called the New York Convention, which was, and to refer back to the previous panel, not self-executing, but Congress passed legislation in the 50s uh, executing it, which means that uh, uh, disputes between private parties are sent to a, a particular body, uh, and, and it, it deals with how the judgments are affected and how they're enforced, um, uh, how the judgments are domesticated is the term. Um, so contract laws, you know, it depends. Each contract is, is, might be governed by different um, countries or, or jurisdictions' laws and might be... Um, uh, subject to uh, the disputes about that law might be subject to yet another body, whether it be a private arbitral body or the courts of a of a particular country or the courts of Delaware or New York uh, is quite quite common to have. Um, so there are procedures in place to have to recognize international judgments, and there's all sorts of exceptions on pol public policy grounds, and like you can't contract for slaves, for example, that contract is not going to judgment based on that is not going to be enforced in this country. Um, uh, but there are, you know, contract principles differ in, in different different countries. So it just depends uh, the law under which that that contract is is uh, governed, and uh, you know the, the the dispute resolution body that that's stated in that contract, and then you you go from there to see whether it can be domesticated here or in France or Japan or or what have you. Any further questions? We have a few minutes. Yes, sir. Wait for the microphone. Uh, Philip Garee from Northern Illinois University. Um, just a general question for the panel. Um, how many more cases do you, do you think uh, we can anticipate or in general in the future where um, the justices are going to have to recuse themselves and the entire court's going to have to recuse itself? It happened once last term. Can we anticipate it to happen anymore in the future? The issue of recusals generally, anything you have to say about that? For The, the issue, again, is several times this, this term, uh, and most notably on a on a cert um, petition, um, several justices recused themselves because they owned stocks, uh, something on the order of hundreds or thousands of dollars, not you know, huge holdings. Um, and that affected, in, in several cases, the, 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 the end result. So there's, there's been proposals um, just to change the ethical rules or understandings, uh, or sometimes more formal, so that justices, you know, at that level, presumably they're not going to be corrupted if, you know, for example, uh, Justice Alito has... Uh, I forget, I think it's Exxon stock, you know, that he shouldn't recuse himself just because he owns, you know, $3,000 worth of Exxon stock. Any comments on that from the panel? I mean, I certainly um, wouldn't want to tell the justices how to run their personal portfolios, but um, I can certainly say as a practitioner, it is profoundly frustrating when a justice, for I'm sure legitimate reasons, feels that he or she needs to recuse and you don't get the benefit of having a majority opinion, which we certainly saw in some important issues this last term, particularly with a a court of last resort, one wishes there could be a rule of necessity or some way around it, um, because I think it is 
um, you know, consistent with the theme of trying to get consensus decisions and actual decisions that parties can live under, it would be very helpful uh, to have them not simply um, reach a draw. I would say that the, the problem is quite easily fixed by Congress by uh, a very minor tweak in the tax law to allow for a tax-free rollover for people who are entering into government service of any sort to move their investment portfolio to a, a blind trust or an index fund where there would not be any conflict issues. And presumably the justices have not divested themselves of those stocks simply because they would take a big tax hit. But it's hard to see any good policy reason for Congress to not make that change to the tax law. I think once this past term, and I don't remember if it was the Exxon case or one of the other cases, uh, Chief Justice Roberts did uh, divest his stock between the time of the CERT grant and the time of the merits. Uh, Stone Ridge. Decision. He yes. sold the stock. Okay, the Stone Ridge. Okay. Yeah. Right, because he doesn't want to have a second person recused in that, in that case. Yeah. Um, well, I have one. Well, we might have time for one or more after this, but uh, a question for the panel. Uh, and uh, I made remarks earlier, and, and, you know, kind of we have as a running theme that Roger and I and Tim and others at, the, at Cato who speak on, on about the court uh, speak on that, that one of these trends is that we have more business cases, more technical, decided on technical issues, which you know, aren't as exciting to the average uh, citizen. Um, and this is a matter of docket management with, with Justice, Chief Justice Roberts' uh, effect on the court and, and so forth. So, you know, we generalists kind of, you know, try to figure out this trend, although, you know, again, the, the end value of, of number of cases is so low that it's probably not statistically significant. But do specialists among practitioners or in the academy see a trend like this or, or uh, other general trends that, you know, we need to be getting the word out on? I think there may be some reason to think that the Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts in particular, is more amenable to hearing uh, more cases that are of interest to business law. Uh, from my perspective, that's uh, very much a, a mixed bag because, you know, I like it when the Supreme Court is hearing my securities law cases, but they so frequently make a terrible hash of it, I would just wish they would leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, from my perspective, the number of business cases the court is taking is still very small um, in total number, and they still do bypass quite a lot of cases uh, where there's significant dispute in the circuits, and uh, the legal community and the business community uh, would love uh, for them to, re you know, resolve the splits. So while it may have increased as a matter of proportion, it's historically still a very small number of cases. Anything to add? Any more questions? Okay, we've reached a logical end point. So now we'll take a 15-minute coffee break. We'll be back here in 15 minutes sharp for uh, an exciting, uh, the final panel before our keynote address looking ahead at next year's term. Thank you.